Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. So Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joses, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. So... In our study of the book of Acts, we saw in the very beginning that Jesus, before he was ascended, told his disciples to wait. He commanded them to wait, to wait in Jerusalem 
until they received power. And he told them specifically, gave them promises about receiving the power, that when they received the power, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they would receive this power in order for them to be, anybody remember? Witnesses. They were, they were going to be given this power in order to be witnesses. And so the apostles obeyed. They waited in Jerusalem. They gathered together for prayer. And they waited for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. The Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. They received that power. And they gave testimony and witness to the death, burial, resurrection of Christ in a multitude of languages, such that all the Jews and proselytes were coming in from all the world for the feast heard them speak in their own languages. And that day, 3,000 souls were saved. The church began to multiply. And those early believers then, they were told, continued in the, the teaching of the apostles, the koinonia, the camaraderie, the fellowship of the apostles. They continued in the, the breaking of the bread or communion, and they continued in prayer. And then we see later in that same passage that they also had this unity in that they had all things in common, that they sold the goods to meet the needs of the poor. They were one of court, and they gathered together daily in a temple in their houses. Such that then, um, many signs and wonders were being performed by the apostles, and that the Lord was adding to the church daily. From this moment, Luke begins then to break out this theme of the church, the early church, and what was going on with them. And the first thing that he breaks out is the signs and wonders. He begins to show us then um, one of these wonders, one of these signs that Peter then performed. The healing of the layman. We have took the last two weeks to consider it. And in it we saw some sub-themes. Um, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit. That the reality is that Peter and John didn't heal the layman on their own but rather they healed him through the, by the name of Jesus Christ, right? And through the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? And so the Holy Spirit, we saw there, had the power to heal the infirm, to save the lost, and then to embolden the saints as they stood before multitudes of people. We also saw a sub-theme, if you would, of the presence of Peter. To, and we talked about um, how Peter um, wrote in his epistle how we're supposed to always be ready to give an account, to give an answer, to give a defense for, for the, the hope that's within us, and that Peter was demonstrating this at this very moment, that with the layman, and then with the crowd, and then before the Sanhedrin, again, he proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ, and was able to proclaim why they believed what they believed to a different audience. So singularly, then through to a, if you would, a, a non not I'll say non-religious, but um, the, the ones who weren't necessarily studied in it, and then to the Sanhedrin, which was the political religious body. And so they gave this credence, and basically, then in that as well, they gave a credence to the exclusive, exclusivity of the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. That just as Jesus said um, that no man comes unto the Father except by me, so Peter declared that there is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So that salvation is alone in Jesus Christ. It's not in Buddha. It's not in Allah. It's not in uh, uh, Vishnu or, or any of the, the other Eastern gods. There's salvation only in one name, 
and that's the name Jesus. That's why that name is special. But we also saw in this the little subset of the, the prayer of the body, again, as a continuation of it, because when, when Peter and John are released from the Sanhedrin, remember, they're put in prayer, or they're put in prayer, they're put in jail, put in prison, right? And then they're brought to the Sanhedrin, but they can't do anything to them because they know that the guy who's been healed has been lame for how, how, how long? At least 40 years, yeah. So they, they, it's, it's an undeniable miracle, and so they, they don't flog him for this one, we're going to see in a, a week or two how they'll be flogged for another um, proclaiming in the name of Jesus. But they've got to let them go, and they immediately leave, and they go to a house where they know the church will be meeting. I've pondered this thing many, many times. I don't know what house it is, but I, 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 I kind of wonder whether it's the upper room, the same place where they were meeting. And, and honestly, this is a Bob. This isn't from the Bible. I can't prove this. But I, I think it's John Mark's house. Because that's where he's going to go after the angel miraculously gets him out of prison. He winds up going to, to Mary's house, which is the mother of John Mark. Not Mary, remember, Miriam was a common name, very common name. Everybody wanted to name their daughter after Moses' sister Miriam, okay? And so, um, so he goes to that house, and that's John Mark's house, who is the, the author of the Gospel of Mark. Kind of a fun little factoid that plays in there. And so... But they knew exactly where they were going to what? Where they were going to go. And when they get there, the congregation, the body is together. And don't you wonder how many are there? I mean, there were 120 potentially meeting in that upper room before Pentecost. And then 3,000 souls are saved. And now another 1,500 or whatever. So that we're told that at the end of this thing, that 5,000 men, males, are saved, not counting the women and children. So the church is potentially up to 6,000, 7,000, 10,000, 12,000. I don't know, but we know it's 5,000 men plus the others. And I'm thinking, boy, that upper room's got to be pretty packed. You think we're packed. That was, a, that was an exciting moment when we had to wait for more communion things. I mean, I, I, I did that second one with two, two lines this time, and I thought, oh, you know, it'll, it'll be fine. You know, because I don't mind if we have a couple that we have to just dump. You know, I'm not into this is the blood of Jesus, and I'm afraid of dumping the blood of Jesus down the drain. And, and so anyways, God said, oh, yeah, watch this. And so then I had to wait for two more to be done. So that's kind of a cool thing. But we're burgeoning, right? And so we're still missing people. And so if everybody still came, look around you. Could you imagine what this would be like if a thousand people showed up this morning? We'd be outside. You know, in other areas of the world, they'd have these windows opened, and people would be sitting outside the windows, be listening. The doors would be open, they'd be out there listening. We'd be meeting in the field because there were so many people, and we're just hoping. You understand? We're, we're, we're into this convenience thing. But anyways, it's just side thought, and I've got to move on. But just another one of those things that just boggles my brain when I think about how the early church is doing this, right? So in this as well, then, um, we see this happening. In when they come out of this prayer meeting, this prayer meeting is full of praise and, and prayer, and, and they're, they're asking for boldness. Now, remember, they were just received a threat. Don't preach in this guy's name anymore. Or it's going to get worse. And so they go back and they don't say, Lord, wipe those guys out. Rather, they say, Lord, give us boldness. That in the face of persecution, we will proclaim the name of Jesus. And as they come out of this prayer meeting, 
as they pray this and they come out of this prayer meeting, we're going to see the greatness of the church, the real megachurch. You know, today we have this term, the megachurch. You know, and when, we say, when you say megachurch, you instantly think what? Big, like in numbers. But we're going to see that God talks about the megachurch right here because this word megos, megos, is, is the Greek word, and it means great or mighty, okay? And it comes up numerous times in this passage. My whole full thought process on this message changed. I mean, the elders can tell you I said I was going to be speaking on, on giving today. And so when I did my breakdown, and so we have a breakdown of the book of Acts of how we're, what we're going to be going over for the next year, okay? And so my topic today that I thought I was going to be talking about was giving. But God just redirected me all week, allowing me to see the greatness of the church in this moment. But what we see is that the greatness of the church is a direct result of the church focusing on the greatness of our God. They go into that prayer meeting, and then they come out of that prayer meeting, focusing on the greatness of God. That God is bigger than any problem or any entity that can stand against him in your life. Just as Caleb, and I've got a whole lot of Old Testament stuff coming, flowing through my brain as I went through this passage as well, but I can't go into all of it. It's just so marvelous. But just as Caleb says, I want that mountain. Think about it. What was the mountain that Caleb wanted? It was a mountain what? What did you say? Go ahead. It was a mountain of God. Is that what you said? Yeah, it was the mountain of God. But there was something more important about that mountain at that moment. What was it? What was on that mountain? Say again. Enemies. Enemies. What kind of enemies? Which enemies were on that mountain? Biggins. No, the Anakim. The giants. The giants were on that. And that no one's, that everyone was in fear of. Remember? He was one of 12 spies who would be witnesses. Isn't it kind of fun that there's 12 apostles? Anyways, he was one of 12 that went into the land and came back. Ten of them said what? Oh, yeah, it's everything God said it is, except for there's giants and we can't do it. Joshua and Caleb says, yes, we can, because our God is great. Because our God will give us the land. And similarly, that's what this church is doing. The greater than the giants. The God that I serve is greater than the giants that are out there even today. The Sanhedrin was the biggest Anakim they could face. But it was nothing compared to the sovereign God who is over all things. And so they looked to the greatness of their God and God poured out greatness, if you would, upon them. And so today I want to look at the greatness of the church. And I'm only going to look at six major points of it. But even while I sat here, I, I wanted to put in, I said, oh man, I should have put number seven, the great harvest. So we're not going to talk, if you, if you, great harvest isn't going to be on there. But you can add it already, put it as, as um, H or G, because I'm not going to get to it. But it's all through it. There's a great harvest that's going to come from the greatness of, of the church looking to the greatness of their God. Okay, And so first of all is the great boldness that they had. Note what it says right off the bat, that the whole 
church, the whole church was filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Verse 31. The, 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 the building was, was, was shaken. They were all filled, not just the apostles here. They were all filled. They were all empowered with the Holy Spirit. And when they were, they all spoke the word of God. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know why LibreOffice is doing this to me. Anyways, so if there's a bunch of missing things, I understand I've caught some of them but I, when I came here. But for some reason now, LibreOffice is playing a game with me. It's deleting half my sentences. Anyways, so it is filling the blank. It's really filling the blank. So, the, so maybe I need to keep, take my notes with me, right? Anyways, so the whole church was, was bold in speaking the word of God. Okay? The whole church was bold. So they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were bold in speaking the word of God. It's an amazing thing. So, so boldness, okay? It was all there, okay? They had great boldness. But based upon then that, as well, coming out of this, they had the great unity, which we again saw in Acts chapter 2, and now continues on. And we see how this great unity then is defined, first of all, in the fact that they had one heart in one soul. They had one passion, one purpose. They were joined together in one accord with one thought. What do you think that was? What do we just see it was? What did they declare that it was? The name of Jesus Christ. It's the same reason we get together here. But I, but I, I challenge you, as I'm challenging myself in this, okay? And, and I, I never want us, hear what I'm saying. I don't want to be, this guy's continually beating the sheep, okay? That's not my intent. But I don't want us to become complacent. Churches become complacent. They play church. They punch their tickets. And God, that's what God talks to the church of Ephesus is about. Church of Ephesus says, I know your works. I know they're great. I know how all these things that you've done for me. And I know that you've tested those who said they were prophets and you found them to be false. And it'd be great if he stopped right there, right? But Jesus doesn't stop there in his message to the church of Ephesus. What's the next word he says? Nevertheless. But, nevertheless, I have... One, one thing against you. You've done all these things. Kind of reminds me of James 2.10. Though you obey the whole law, yet you stumble at one point, you're guilty of it all. You've done all these great things, nevertheless, you've stumbled in one point. You've lost your first love. And if you don't repent, change the way you think, and return from whence you have fallen, I will come and I will remove your candlestick. Churches can meet. Churches can have great singing. Churches can have great teaching. But still be missing their first love. You will do phenomenally everything you can for the one that you love. And so I want to challenge us to not be like that, to not lose a first love. To not be complacent. And we come, we study God's word. Oh man, we're learning it. Oh, we know much more. We can go and we can do Bible quizzes with other people and we make them look like they're just silly because they don't know anything. But who cares if you know it and you don't apply it? Then I'm just a Pharisee. I'm just a hypocrite. 
they had great unity. They had a, a singleness, if you would, of heart, of and soul, their passion, their purpose. But it was also then seen in the distribution of their possessions, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. But note, first of all, they had a proper recognition of the ownership. They knew exactly who owned all things. Verse 34, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them. Right? Well, why did they do that? Because, verse 32, when it says they were of one heart and one soul, it says, Neither did anyone say that any, that any of the things that he possessed was... His own. I don't own it. My house, my cars, my bank accounts, my investments, they're not mine. Who do they belong to? God. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and all who live in it. God owns everything. He owns everything, and he has, by his grace, distributed to me what I have. They had a proper recognition of stewardship. They recognized that they didn't own anything, but rather they were being allowed the privilege of stewarding what God had given to them. And it was to be for his glory and his kingdom's glory. Jesus gave the parable then of the one he gave the talents to. And you remember the story, and I don't want to go through it and spend time on it right now. It's not where we're heading other than to say that the, the one who had 10 came back and he said this, and he says, oh, you have 10, 10 cities, right? And, he, and then it comes back with five. And then finally the one comes back and he had, he had been given one talent, right? And he said what? I know that you are a hard and fearful ruler and that you, you reap where you did not sow. And, and so I went and I hid my talent so that I could give it back to you when you came back. And Jesus said, that what will the Lord of that servant say? You wicked servant. You wicked. I don't know about you, but I don't want to hear my Lord look to me and call me wicked. I want to hear that, well done, my good and faithful servant. You wicked servant. You took what I gave you and you hid it. How much worse then is it, you wicked servant, you took what I gave you to be used for my kingdom and you spent it on yourself. And you spent it on yourself. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't want me to have my needs met. That's why he gives it to me. But just think about what does God ask for back? And I'm not going to give a message on the giving side here on what you need to give. We'll talk about giving in just a moment. Other than to say, God doesn't ask for a lot back. But what he asks for back is from the heart. And not by compulsion. And when you fully get what God has done for you, when you fully get the greatness of our God, you will understand that that great God can provide for you at every single moment. And it doesn't matter whether your bank account says zero or whether your bank account says one with however many zeros at the end of it that you want to. You track what I'm saying? God is great. So they had this great unity that was defined by their passion and purpose and also by the distribution 
of their, um, their goods. But then there was a great power then that came upon them, that as a result of this unity that they had, as a result of this focus on the greatness of their God and their prayer for boldness and everything, God granted them this great power that would come upon them, that they would give witness to the resurrection. Okay? Remember Christ's promise. He said that, I want you to wait, and when you wait, what's going to happen? Power's going to come upon you. And when the power comes upon you, there's a purpose for it. And it's to make you what? A great witness. Jesus, again, I know I've said this numerous times through this series, but it's good for us to remember. Jesus told Peter when he first met him, when he first called him, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And what's Peter finding out? God's going to do exactly what God said. And he's making him, making him, making him, empowering him to be a fisher of men. But Peter needed to do what? To open up his mouth. He needed to do it. The people needed to do it. And so the people prayed for this boldness. And then they went out and they all began to proclaim the word of God. The whole church. Not just the apostles. Note that we're specifically told all these things, right? So the, the, the whole church goes out, and they begin proclaiming the word of God. It's a challenge. When's the last time you went out proclaiming the word of God? Intentionally. Intentionally. That the word of God was coming out of your mouth to other people. Not knowing whether it was going to cause a provocation or not. Performing wonders through the people. We're told specifically that it was the apostles who were performing these wonders. And then even more specifically, as we get to the end of this passage, Peter. Such that people were bringing out the, the, the sick, the infirm, the lame. And they're laying them on the streets such that even the, the shadow of Peter might pass over them. Non-Catholics have a... a cringe when they see this thing because it you know like peter's not a pope no it never says that peter was pope but it says that that god was using peter it's okay with that I'm, I'm 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 grabbing onto that jesus told peter that he would be the rock he would be a foundation that he was going to build his church and he was doing that just as he promised he was doing that he's using peter to build that church peter never think about peter big mouth peter he never claims this to be his own. He realizes that he's only a channel. Some of you remember the old hymn, Channels Only, Blessed Savior, Blessed Master. That thing's been flooding through me for the last week and a half, two weeks. I'm just a channel. It's all I am. It's God who's doing the work. You're just a channel. You're just a channel. Do you get it? But are you willing to be a channel? Is the valve, if you would, open? Are you closing it off? God, the, our great God, did great things in this early church. The greatness of the church. They had great boldness. They had great unity. They had great power. To be able to do some pretty marvelous things. 
But you got to believe. You got to believe. And you got to be committed. And so I ask myself, am I? Are we? From that, again, continuing on the passage, we see then that not only great power came upon them, but great grace was upon them. Now, for the most part, until Friday, until I had to finalize and finish my thing, this point was called great favor, not great grace. Because that's what the word charis means, unmerited favor. And they had, first of all, clearly the favor of God. God was showing them great favor by, by through this great power that he's putting upon them, by encouraging them with a great unity and such like that. But I think there's more in play here as you go to the end of the passage um, that we're talking about. So chapter 5, come all the way down in chapter 5. And we read in verse 13, it says, Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them what? Highly. And so that's a form of the word mega as well. They had great favor among the people. And so we see that as well in um, Acts 2, right from the beginning. That um, praising God and having favor, that's our word charis, grace, among, with all the people. And we read that Jesus in Luke chapter 2, that as Jesus grew, he grew and he had grace or favor before God and men. So this word isn't necessarily grace, like unmerited favor, that we think about it when we talk about it from, from God. But it can mean favor amongst the people. And I think God was blessing them with great favor, not only with himself. That's true. And we see it portrayed very easily. But also among the people. Proverbs talks about when your works please the Lord, he makes even your enemies to be at peace with you. The Sanhedrin couldn't find anything to blame them. The only thing they could find to condemn them with is that they hung out with Jesus. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? That you were brought before the judges and you know your past. And they want to accuse you of something. And all they can find to accuse you of is You've been hanging out with Jesus. You've been following the teachings of Jesus. You're proclaiming the teachings of Jesus. You're living out the teachings of Jesus. And for that, we want to condemn you. Praise God. Condemn me. Do you get it? Do you know how many people were eaten by lions in the Colosseums? Because of the accusation in the... the, um, Help me out with my words here. The conviction, they were convicted by the the courts that they were hanging out with Jesus. They were following the teachings of Jesus. And for that, they died. God gave this church great favor. I'm going through the Chronicles right now in my quiet time. And I'm just overwhelmingly reminded almost every single day as I'm going through the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. The kings of Israel was from 2 Kings. But anyways, you get where I'm going on that. That when the king followed after Yahweh and he led the people to follow after Yahweh, Yahweh gave them great victories. And he blessed the land. But when the king turned... 
And he began to follow other gods. God handed them over to themselves. And the enemies began to beat them. There's a principle throughout God's word. That when you are trusting in God, when you are fully trusting him, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God, Yahweh our God. When you are placing your trust, your hope, your confidence, everything you are in the name of Yahweh, in the name of Christ, he will always be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You will always be victorious. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers. You go through the list in Romans chapter 8. There is nothing that can separate you. In him, we are more than conquerors. We're uber nikos. We're uber victors. Our teenagers, we call the program Victors in Christ. But Romans 8, it's even beyond victors. That word victor comes from the word nikos, or victors, plural, nikoi, from the, in the Greek, nikos. is where the Nike, you know, when you buy Nikes, it's, Nike is the Greek goddess, but she's the goddess of victory. Nikos is the, then the, the Greek word for victor, to, to win. And so in Romans 8, we're called over victors. Over victors. Because you have this relationship with Jesus Christ. So even those people getting eaten by the lions, they were uber victors. The world thought that they were being what? Destroyed. But they were getting the early ticket because their reservations were made. First Peter, right? Chapter 1, their reservations were made in heaven. And Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many dwelling places i go to prepare a place for you and if it were not so i would have told you and i'm going to prepare a place for you and when it's ready what am i going to do i'm going to come back and i'm going to bring receive you unto myself that where i am there you may be also do you get it amen indeed how cool is that god's given us his favor and he gives us favor among men and then we see this part where I originally was going to start talking about, but now it's just a sub-theme. Great giving. First, we have the positive example oops, of Barnabas. Ignore that part. We'll come to that in a moment. The positive example of Barnabas. They call him Barnabas because it means the son of consolation. We're going to see Barnabas in the days ahead because it's going to be Barnabas who disciples Paul. Comes along Saul who becomes Paul. But Barnabas is a Levite, we believe, and he has this land. In fact, I think it says that he's a Levite in the passage, yes? Yeah. And that's why, why we, we believe that, because it's written. Anyways, so I knew I heard it someplace. Anyways, um, somewhere in the good book it says something about. Anyways, um, but Barnabas has all this property. And he takes it. Now, we don't know how much property he has, so you need to understand this, right? He has this parcel, and he sells it all, Right? Sells it. Sells it all, of course. Sells the parcel. And then he takes the proceeds and he brings it all and he sets it at the feet of the apostles. They had elder rule at this moment. Okay? We'll see and when we get to chapter 6 how that changes a little bit. Okay? But right now, the apostles rule. Okay? So, he sold it. 
he brought the giving to the apostles' feet for them to be able to use for the distribution of the needs within the body. Okay? So he brought it all. He brought it before them. Great example. But that leads us into the negative example that we see in chapter 5. And that is Ananias and Sapphira. Okay? If you've been around churches long enough, you've heard about Ananias and Sapphira. You either, you, more than likely, you hear it in, from, the, from the, the negative side of the rawr, 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 because of the, you know, on the giving side. And you're going to get a little bit of that right now. But, um, but understand the, the whole point of this whole thing. Okay? And that it's even going to highlight even more the greatness of our God. First of all, Proverbs 25, 14, whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and winds without rain. In other words, if you, we, we have a, an offering box. We don't pass a, a, a plate, okay? There's a reason for that. God doesn't need your tip. If you didn't come planning on giving to God, then we're not going to pass a plate in order for you to feel compelled to take something out of your wallet to put it in. This isn't about getting money. God will provide for what God chooses to provide for. That's why we have a box in the back. If you came to worship God and you came to give as, as part of the worship, then the box is back there. It's always exciting to me when someone says to me, um, you guys don't take up an offering. Uh, how do I give? How do I, where, where do I give my offerings to the Lord? And I go, I'm rejoicing in the Lord right now. There's a box in the back. Because it's not to me. I don't want to know. I never count. So the guys can tell you. I, I don't. So when I stand here and, and talk on something like this, I have no idea who gives what. Okay? I, re- I have no idea, and I don't want to know. I have no clue. You don't know what I give. I don't know what you give. That's a good thing. There's only a couple guys in here who know what everybody give. Okay? So, so what's the deal? Well, the deal coming through this is that God's going to reveal the greatness of his holiness and the greatness of his justice, the greatness of his righteousness through these people. We see throughout Scripture that God, when he's beginning a new work, reveals his standard and what the effects are of not meeting that standard. Nadab and Abihu were um, the sons of Aaron, and they took it upon themselves that they could offer then a, um, an offering on their own. And they brought what we're told is an unclean sacrifice, right? They brought the censer, and when they placed it upon the altar, what happened? They got fried. Fire came out of the altar. God brought fire out of the altar. And he singed those two guys immediately. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. It's never changed. The wages of sin is always death. God is long-suffering in that he holds off judgment. But at the beginning of each, what I refer to as stewardship or dispensation. Okay, I believe in those. Okay. That God reveals his holiness. God reveals the, the, the righteous standards that he has, and he reveals the fact that he is a God who's going to judge sin. Numbers 12, Miriam and Arian. You think Miriam would, be, would be, have this cloak about her, right? Nope. Miriam and Aaron, they begin to whine about Moses and the power that he has, and they want some of it too, and God says, enough's enough, and I'm going to show you through your leadership what I think about sin. And so he takes Miriam and Aaron, and Miriam becomes a leper on the spot. And Aaron says to Moses, oh, please pray for her, intercede for her. So Moses does, and Yahweh says, fine, I'll remove the leprosy, but, no, but only after seven days. She needs to understand, and the people need to understand what this is like, that I don't, I don't want to put up with this stuff. So put her out of the camp. Miriam, Miriam was put out of the camp 
for seven days as a leper. And God healed her and brought her back in. The man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. You know the story, don't you? I mean, God, God tells him, you know, you can go out, you're going to collect the manna, and are you going to do this stuff? But you guys aren't going to do any work on the Shabbat. Seventh day is my day, no work. How much work? No work. Well, someone comes back and says, hey, man, I saw someone picking up sticks. Picking up sticks. Not the game, pick up sticks. In order to make a fire. And they said, what are we going to do? Moses, I don't know. Let's put them in the holding cell, if you would. And we're going to ask God. What does God want us to do? Right? So they ask Yahweh. Yahweh comes back and says, stone him. Stone him to death. That everybody will understand my standard of rebellion. He rebelled against the word of God. Do you get it? Probably the net wasn't on the Sabbath day. That's a good question, Hunter. That's a great question. I was trying to figure out where you were going with it. Then it clicked in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so first day. Yeah, on, on church. They, they stoned him in church. No, anyways. anyways. But, um, but first day. They probably stoned him the next day. That's a great question, Hunter. And so, so there they, they, God shows the what? The standard. Picking up sticks. That's why I always tell the kids in CEF. Do you guys remember this? Did you ever disobey your mom or your dad? I mean, this is pretty simple. You want to talk about sin? Did you ever disobey your mom or your dad? And every kid has to say what? Yes. I said, if you tell me no, you're a liar. So now you got two, okay? So the reality is, if you've ever disobeyed your mom or your dad, God says you're a what? You're a sinner. How many sins does it take for death? One, even picking up sticks. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you ready for this one? If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are still under the law. Every time you go out and pick up sticks on the Shabbat, on the Sabbath, and you're under the law, you're bringing more and more condemnation to yourself. Do you track with me on this one? That's what God thinks of sin. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. What happened to those guys? The earth opened up. Yeah, the earth opened up and swallowed them. You think God hates sin? God hates sin. So what about Ananias and Sapphira? What did they do? They sold property. They sold property and they brought the proceeds to the foot of the elders. It'd be nice if we stopped right there. But that's not really how it all happened, is it? They sold it. And they brought proceeds, but they didn't bring all the proceeds. Now, folks, I don't know whether they sold 90%, whether they took 10%, whether they took 1%, whether they took a penny. I don't know that. But clearly, they made a covenant before God and said that they would sell the property and donate it all. Right? But they didn't. They held some back. I don't know how much they held back. Might have been a lot, might have been a little. I don't know. But God knew. They wanted the glory of giving publicly for everybody to see it. But they also wanted the greedy of having part of it on their own. 
And God held them accountable. But he gave him a chance, didn't he? He gave him a chance to repent. Is this everything you got? And I says, what? Yeah, it is. How can you lie to God like that? Boom, you're dead. Do you think that would get people's attention? If you came in today and God gave me a special word, and Brian, why did you da-da-da-da-da? And he says, well, I da-da-da-da. I said, you're lying to God. Boom. First of all, I think we'd have the, the authorities coming in. Um, they didn't have to worry about that in their day. They went, out, they, they went out and buried the guy, and his wife doesn't even know they buried him. Anyways, <laughs> different kind of culture. But do you think great fear start falling upon us? Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. Because you start to understand what sin means to God, right? Well, then you go out and they bury him, and the, the young men come back in, and now comes in Sapphira. And he says, Sapphira, is this all you, got, got, you guys got from it? She says, yes. She says, how is it you've conspired to lie to the Holy Spirit? And I don't have time to go into that. But there's a clear indicator of the, the deity of the Holy Spirit, that he's a person, he's not an entity, he's not a force. Okay? That's all I'm going to say on that. And so, so clearly she joins with him in it. She must have known she wasn't duped. It's like the sin of Achan where he's hiding it in his tent. And so his whole family is also in on this thing because they knew that he was hiding stuff in his tent and didn't turn in dad. Didn't turn in a husband. Tracking? So the whole family of Achan, you go back and search that one out if you're saying, I don't know who he's talking about. Go figure it out. That they all got stoned. They all got killed. And then got burnt up. They fired them up. Had a barbecue with them. And so God said, I hate sin. Do you get it? The greatness of our God. The greatness of his knowledge of everything you do. In the greatness of his holiness. It comes in the greatness then of our giving. If you know he owns it all. If you know that you're just a steward. And he can provide you more than you can ever give. Second Corinthians 8 and 9, right? God loves a what? Yeah, and you cannot give him. Anyways, move on. The great fear came upon them, upon them all. The recognition of the holiness and justice of God. I mean, that'd be, I think that's be enough. But sadly, we have the word of God. And we have all these stories. We have all these accounts. We have all these true summarizations of what happened. We read them. And we go, oh, oh. And then we walk out of here and we do what? It's exactly right. And we do nothing. Say it again. Or worse, the opposite. I stand guilty. I get it, guys. I get it. Why do we do the things we don't want to do and don't do the things we do want to do? There is a war that's going on in my flesh. But all I can tell you is the more that I separate myself to God, the greater the battle is against my flesh. But if I'm not separating myself unto God, and if I'm not filling myself with His Word, if I'm not finding myself in His presence, I have nothing, nothing that's going to battle against it. Do you, you track? And yet I wonder, why do I fall? Quiet time every morning is paramount for me. If my first appointment's at 9 o'clock, and let's say i got to leave my house at 8.45 to get it, that means my first appointment is at least 7.45, if not 7.30. Because it's with God. Which means I need to get up a half hour to 45 minutes or whatever I need before that in order to have that time. Do you understand? Does that make sense? 
It's critical. I have learned that it's critical. When, I don't, when I'm not spending quality time with the Lord daily in his word, I will fall. I will fall. There's not a matter of I might fall. I'm going to serve me, not God. And in that very moment, I've fallen. We wait for this big sin thing and say, that's falling. No, when I'm serving Bob and not God, I've fallen. Are you, you get it? Understand the battle where the battle lines really draw. When I'm not focusing on my great God anymore, but I'm focusing on Bob, I've already fallen. He's already distracted me. Satan has already won the battle. Fear came upon all the church. You can read these passages, but I want to highlight the 1 Corinthians 11 that has to do with our communion. It says, For this reason some are sick and some are even dying, because they're eating and drinking of the body and blood of Christ unworthily. Listen, that time is special. It's critical. Salvation is when you call upon the name of God. That's when salvation occurs. That's what communion is all about, is a remembrance of what he's done for us. If you've never done that, it's not for you. And if you're treating people wickedly, that's what the 1 Corinthians 11 passage is all about. If you're treating people wickedly in in, in the fellowship, and then you're going to come in and act like nothing's happened, and you're going to eat it and drink it, God's like, no, no. And so for the church of Corinth, Paul says, listen, for this reason, some in your midst are sick and some are even dying because they're eating and drinking of the body and blood of Jesus unworthily. Do you believe that? When you come in to have communion, and we have it, is it a big deal to you? Do you really pray? Are you really seeking to make yourself pure before God and before others? Or is it just, eh, it's just what we do. First Sunday of the month, cookies and Kool-Aid. Cookies and Kool-Aid. And I joke about cookies and Kool-Aid because I still remember from the time I was a little kid, a, a kid down the street, his first name was Joe, you don't know him. And he was he'd ride down, cookie and Kool-Aid, cookie and Kool-Aid, down Joha, down Joha. And I think that's how we treat communion sometimes. We tell everybody, just come on down, we're going to have cookies and Kool-Aid down Joe's house. And it's not. It's not. This is a special moment. Such that God says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you if you don't do it right. Again, I'm not trying to be rude and, and be that hardline preacher. This is just what God's word teaches. Do I care about sin? Do I care about the greatness of my God? What do I communicate about the greatness of my God in the midst of all this? But the fear came upon all those who heard. Look, they didn't even want to, they were afraid to get together with them. They gave them, they held them in high esteem. People around about the church had great fear. First Kings. This is the, the third captain that comes to, to Elijah. The first two. Does anybody know what happened to the first two? That burned up. It says so in there. They got burned up. The third one comes and says, oh, listen, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> please don't, please don't. Yeah, I'm just following orders. We don't know whether he loves Yahweh or not. Probably not. But he understands the power of Yahweh because he saw it displayed through Elijah. Do you get it? And the people feared Yahweh as a result of the people of Yahweh fearing Yahweh. Do we fear Yahweh? 
or do we do what we want to do? So in the end, what do your prayers look like? What do the prayers of this assembly look like? When we have our weeks of prayer and fasting, again, that's just for us to, to learn and to teach. It's a teaching moment. But still, when we get together Wednesday nights and pray, when we do the week of prayer, what are our prayer life? What does our prayer life look like? What are we praying for? Are we praying for boldness? Are we praying for the greatness of our God to be displayed through us? Or are we worrying about, our, you know, again, I get physical needs. I understand that. But am I, am I merely praying for my sore toe? And I know we're not praying for sore toes, but you get what I'm going on that one, okay? That in comparison, am I looking for the power of God to be poured out upon this assembly? That's what I want. I want the walls to shake. I want us to go out and just be proclaiming in our neighborhoods. And I want to see thousands of people saved. That's what I want. So I'm not picking on y'all. I'm picking on Bob. So I can say that. By your own words, you will be condemned. I know it. And you say it with me. I know you'd say it with me. You'd agree with me. You'd love to see that happen. But how is that transferring into my life? Are we praying for boldness and opportunities to share the gospel of Christ with others? What does my giving look like? How would God describe my stewardship of the resources which he has entrusted with to me? Is it mine or is it his? And I'm asking him to help me distribute it in the ways that he wants me to distribute it. What does my witnessing look like? Am I willingly, purposely sharing the gospel with those that I meet? I mean, I, I'm honest. I tell you guys, I'm a yellow-bellied chicken liver. I'm work- That's why knocking on doors is good for me because it continually teaches me to open my mouth up with people I don't know. And that helps. Steve, yes? You just came back from Cuba, right? Next week we'll hear more about that. But doing those things emboldens you for coming back here, right? And so you got to do things in your life in order to make yourself more bold. If you know that's what God wants you to be, then, then do it. Then, then, then place things in your life purposely, willingly, that will enable you to do that. That will encourage you. That will strengthen you. That will edify you to do these things. Is there then a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for you. Thank you for your greatness and your goodness. Thank you that you have chosen to show your greatness through those who believe in you. And as we talk about the greatness of the church, Lord, we understand really the greatness of the church is just a reflection of you, the greatness of our God. And the great things that you have done for us, even this time of the year, Lord, when we think the great gift that you've given to us by coming to the earth in order to be the great sacrifice for our sins. Oh, Father, help us to yearn for greatness, but not in and of ourselves. Not that we can boast in and of ourselves, but Lord, that we can boast in you. And that others might see your greatness through us. That the world may know that you alone are God. That there is none other. And that many might come to understand, to accept, and know your grace. That you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.